So this morning we're kicking off uh, a new sermon series for Advent called A Weary World Rejoices. And as we do, we're going to be moving through the book of Micah and looking at the coming of the king. And so this morning, again, as we turn to Micah chapter 1, we're going to begin with why is the king coming? So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Micah chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, your sermon notes, the text will be included at the top. So Micah chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. And will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open. Like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I'll pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute, she gathered them into the fee of a prostitute, they shall return. So again, this morning, we're answering the question, why is the king coming? And as we answer that, we're going to take a look at three things. First, the king is coming because of idolatry. The second thing you're going to see is the king is coming to conquer. The third thing you're going to see is the king is coming and has come to rescue. So the king is coming because of idolatry. So if you look in verse 3, you'll see it says, Behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. It says the, the king is coming. But this same word also begins... By saying the word of the Lord that came to Micah in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. See, these three men, they were kings of Judah. And in their reign, two things were going on. On one hand, the glory of the nation of Israel had already begun to wane. Previously, they'd known huge amounts of influence. But by this time, they had broken up into two separate kingdoms. The influence they had was waning year after year. But then on the other hand, their neighbors two new kingdoms begin to arise, the kingdom of Syria and the kingdom of Assyria. So right as they're beginning to wane, these two new kingdoms are beginning to emerge and flourish. And so they're faced with a question. They're faced with, where are they going to turn for life? Where are they going to turn for security? And so to see how they answer that question, we're going to take a look at King Ahaz. If you have your Bibles with you, Second Chronicles 28 uh, records the reign of King Ahaz. So now see, King Ahaz, he was uh, stuck between a rock and a hard place. On one hand, the throne he had inherited was already withering. It was beginning to wane. In, in other words, things weren't going as well as he had hoped they would go. Things weren't going to be the way that he hoped they would be. And on the other hand, his neighbors, the kings around them, they were flourishing. Things were going amazing. Their influence was growing day to day. And Ahaz faced this really difficult question of where would he turn for life? Would he turn to the Lord his God 
the God of the nation of Israel, or would he turn to the gods of the kings around him? So if you have your Bible, 2 Chronicles 28, verse 22, describes the decision Ahaz made. It said, in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same king Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, now listen, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. See, we know what this is like. We live in a culture that prioritizes success. It prioritizes consumption. We measure how well we're doing by how much we have. And no matter how much we have, we always feel like we need a little more. That no matter what it is that we have, there's always one more thing that we need to make ourselves happy. See, maybe it's uh, our marriage is going great, but if we only had a bigger house, things would be perfect. Or we have great friends, but maybe if we just lived in a better part of town, things would be good. Or all my bills are paid, all my needs are provided for, but if I just had a little more money in the 401k, I'd feel secure. And so these needs well up in us, and as they do, we do exactly what Ahaz did. We He turned and he looked at his neighbors. He looked at the kings around him. And we do the same thing. We look at our neighborhoods and we look at our playgrounds and we look at our offices and we see people who have the things we think we need. And just then we face the temptation of Ahaz. Are we gonna serve the Lord our God or turn to the gods of the kings around us? See, idolatry, it's not just sacrificing to idols. And it's not just something that happened 3,000 years ago. The Bible says idolatry is covetousness. It's, you know what it is, it's that dogged pursuit of something someone else has because I think if I can get it, I'll have life in getting it. And the Bible says that on account of covetousness, the wrath of God is coming. Jeremiah 2.13 describes the situation of our heart this way. It says, My people have committed two sins. The first one is they've forsaken me, the spring of living water. That is, they've turned from God in an attempt for independence, in an attempt to have life on their own. And then the second thing they've done is they've dug cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. See, it says that after we turn from the Lord in an attempt to have life on our own, then we turn to other things and we look for life in those things, and then those things inevitably fail us. Our money fails us. Our family fails us. Our careers fail us. And then it, you know what it says we do? It says we dig another cistern. After our money fails us, after our families fail us, after our careers fail us, we turn to another thing. It says the condition of the human heart is to relentlessly pursue other things in the search for life. I had a, a really good friend who sent me a meme over the weekend that I thought captured the spirit of our cistern digging Y'all know what a meme is, right? It's, uh, it's those little pictures with captions on it that they call out the elephant in the room and they call it out so clearly it's funny. Well, this one said, Black Friday. The day that we trample one another to buy new things just one day after being grateful for the things we already have. 
right? Isn't that a commentary on our heart that no matter how much we have, no matter how happy we are, no matter how much has been provided, we always feel like we need something else. And that our pursuit of that other thing, it leads us to trample on other people. It might not be emotional, it might not be physical, but it might be relational, it might be spiritual. Honestly, we don't just trample on other people, we trample on our own lives. We're willing to crash through just about anything to get the next thing that we feel like we need. And listen, our, uh, in America, our idolatry, it's not just materialism. We turn to other things in the pursuit of affirmation, in the pursuit of uh, meaning, in the pursuit of purpose. We set up hobbies. We create new competitions. We create challenges. My wife will tell you about the year I spent 25 hours a week training for a race that I barely finished. I never did again. Gave me no practical value. And I did it just so I could say I had done it. A... Uh, a reporter who was covering the National Car Stereo Competition said it this way when he was watching the dogged pursuit of purpose. He said, everybody wants to be the king of a hill, but the number of aspiring kings always dwarfs the number of available hills. So in this country, we build more hills. See, the reason this matters, the reason it mattered for Ahaz the reason it mattered for us is the Lord is the one who made heaven and earth. He's the one who made his people and he's the one who rescued Israel out of Egypt. He's the one who called the church to himself and he believes our hearts belong to him. See, the 10 commandments begins this way. It says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not worship them for I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. See, the Lord believes that our hearts were made for him and he wants them just for himself. So I'm asking you the first set of questions this morning. What are your idols? What is the thing that you turn to for life? What's the thing that competes for the affection of your heart? If you had to fill in the blank, if I only had X, things would be perfect. What, what would you say? What would be X? Employees, would everything be perfect if you just had the next promotion? Or parents, if you could just guarantee that your kids would go to a great school, everything would be good? Or singles, maybe you can't rest out of your deep desire to have a spouse and to have family. See, listen, Micah 1 teaches us that the king is coming and that he's coming because of idolatry. He's coming because his people have learned to love other things. But what will he do when he gets here? What's gonna happen when the king finally comes? And to answer that, we're gonna look at our second point. The king is coming to conquer. So if you look back with me at verses three and four and six and seven, just take note of how it describes the king's coming. It says, he will tread upon the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt. The valleys will split. Samaria will be a heap in the open country. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces and all her idols I'll lay waste. 
See, listen, the Lord is the one who made heaven and earth. We just talked about that. He rescued Israel out of Egypt. He made the church for himself. He called her to himself. But the other thing about the Lord is he's a king who thinks he still owns the world. He's a king who believes this planet, that the lives of the people on it and the hearts of those people belong to him. And he doesn't share his glory with anyone else. He doesn't tolerate rivals. And the thing about our idolatry is every single thing that the human heart looks to for life is an assault on his throne. It says that we can have life independent from him, that we can be our own kings. The idols around us say, you you can have life on your own terms if you just make me your God. Psalm 2 describes it this way. It says, the kings of the earth set themselves. I mean, they posture themselves. And they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us find independence and govern ourselves. Let us have life on our own terms. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And then it closes with, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. See, the Bible teaches that the Lord responds to idolatry and wrath. And we know what this is like. Imagine, uh, those of you who have kids, if someone kidnaps your child and carries them away, or those of you who are married, something happens to your spouse. Just think about already at the analogy, the, the anger that wells up in you towards the possibility of that happening. Or maybe something a little closer to home, you You've worked on a project for an entire year and uh, you've given birth to it. You've brought it into the world. You've nurtured it. And then right at the last minute, someone else takes the credit for it. Or maybe you've worked on it and then they take you off the project and someone else gets the success. It makes you angry. But see, he's not like us. God's jealousy and wrath, they're holy and ours are broken. We respond out of this deep insecurity and we fly off the handle, but he doesn't. He's righteous. And what that does is that makes his wrath more terrible. It makes it more sure. See, with us, there, there's usually another side to the story. We, we may be angry at someone, but there's always a, another part. But when it comes to the wrath of God against idols, there is no other part to the story. He is right and we are guilty. But then the second thing happens. It, uh, inevitably, the Lord deals with our idolatry. He drives us to repentance. And then the story of human history is this, is we repent, and then after a time, we fall back into idolatry. And then we repent, and we fall back into idolatry. And it's a story of the Bible. It's a story of the nation of Israel, it's the story, frankly, of the church. And so the Bible describes a day when the king is coming to make a permanent end to idolatry, that he'll put down the rebellion once and for all. If you 
Turn with me to Revelation 19 and 20. It describes the second coming of King Jesus in this way. It says, his flame, his eyes are like a flame of fire. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the armies of heaven were following him. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And in Revelation 20, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. See, we don't like to talk about the wrath of God today. Complete honesty, when I found out that we were preaching through the book of Micah and we were opening up Advent with Micah chapter one, I cringed. Parker can tell you, I was in the office going, I don't know how this is gonna go. And the reason is the wrath of God makes us uncomfortable. And the reason it makes us uncomfortable is because it's scary. It reminds us that we're guilty. And it reminds us that a day is coming when that guilt's gonna be dealt with. The wrath of God is, it's a messy thing. But here's the thing, it's the witness of the Bible. It says that the king is coming again and when he comes, he will judge the living and the dead. See, at Advent, we prefer meek and mild baby Jesus. But listen to the way the Bible describes the second coming of the king. It calls him the word of God the rider on the white horse, the judge of the living and the dead, the alpha and the omega, the one who has the keys of death in Hades, the ancient of days, the one who was, who is, and who is to come, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and the Lord who the armies of heaven follow after. See, a day is coming when the Lord is gonna make a complete end to idolatry. Think about uh, maybe those, those of you who were old enough to remember this, how you felt on September the 11th. 2001. The most powerful nation in the history of the world is attacked on its home soil. One of its iconic landmarks is raised to the ground. Its citizens are murdered. And we were angry. And we were right to be angry. But our anger didn't just want to see us capture those who committed it and then see them punished. What we wanted to do was destroy terrorism altogether. We wanted to eradicate it from the earth, to destroy its philosophy, its infrastructure, its institutions. And you see, wrath is like that. Wrath wants to make a complete end, but it's not just to annihilate something. It's to make a complete end to the rebellion altogether. It wants to make a final and complete end. And one last point, when you think about uh, the Lord as our creator, you quickly realize that it's not just his wrath, but also his love that wants to smash our idols. So remember, he's the one who made us and who made us for himself. He believes we belong to him, that our hearts were made for him, and that if he left our idols in place, he'd be abandoning us to something less than his best for us, that he'd be abandoning us to something that would consume us and destroy us. 
So the king is coming to conquer. And when he does, he's gonna tread on the high places and not just in his wrath, but in his love, he will smash the idols to pieces. The second question I wanna leave you with, do you hate your idolatry in the way Jesus hates it? Does it annoy you and frustrate you and drive you to Jesus or are you comfortable with it? Do you long for the day the king is coming back to judge the hearts of men or are you glad it hasn't come yet? So we've seen in Micah 1 that the king is coming, that he's coming because of idolatry, that our hearts have learned to love other things. We've also seen that he's coming to conquer, that he's coming to smash our idols to pieces and to make a complete end to the rebellion. But this morning, as we celebrate Advent, as we look to the second coming of Jesus and we look back to his first coming, is there any good news? Is there any reason for hope or reason for comfort or any reason for peace? So to answer that question, we're gonna turn to our third point, that the king who is coming to conquer also came once before to rescue us. You remember that we said that the king is loving? Well, see, this king who is coming again a second time to conquer, who will demonstrate his power, came a first time. And the first time that he came, he didn't want to prove himself to be the one with power. He wanted to prove himself to be the king of a people. He wanted to prove himself to be the king who saves, that he was the great shepherd of his people. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at how King Jesus rescues us. And we're going to see that he rescues us from two things. The first one is he rescues us from the wrath of God that's coming. And the second is he rescues us from our slavery to idolatry. So how does King Jesus rescue us from the wrath of God to come? Well, listen to how Mark 15 describes the first coming of Jesus. It says it was the third hour when they crucified him. And with him, they crucified two robbers. The chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. See, why would this King Jesus come the first time to die? Why would he come and die in this way? And what you'll notice is that King Jesus comes the first time to conquer by being conquered, that he ascends to his throne by ascending to the cross. And the reason that he does that is to purchase us for himself. So you'll see that the king who's coming to conquer came the first time to do for his people what only their king could do. 
that he went up on the cross to absorb in himself the very wrath of God against idolatry. See, Jesus climbed up on the cross to be destroyed so that his people wouldn't have to be. He climbed up on the cross to be destroyed so I wouldn't have to be, so you wouldn't have to be. And see, the beautiful thing about that is it pleased King Jesus to purchase for himself a people that climbing up on the cross, he ransomed his people, he rescued them with his own blood. See, if you're in Christ today, everything we just talked about, the wrath of God towards idolatry, if you're in Christ today, if you trust him for your standing before God, it was exhausted. See, if you're in Christ today, the wrath of God wasn't dodged by you. It wasn't sidestepped by you. It wasn't as if it could be out there lingering and circle back and come a second time. The, the wrath of God was exhausted in King Jesus. See, if you're in Christ today, you're forgiven. If you're in Christ today, you belong to the king. He purchased you with his own blood. See, at Advent, as we look to the second coming Jesus and we look back to the one who purchased us with his blood, we find incredible news that he did for us what only our king could do, that he rescued us from the wrath of God to come. Then as we celebrate Advent, we look to one more thing, the second thing that King Jesus rescues us from, and that's our slavery to idols. See, it would have been no good if King Jesus came and purchased us for himself, but left us in slavery. That if he left us addicted to our idolatry, and so we're gonna look at how King Jesus rescues us. You'll see uh, this morning, we've talked a good bit about idolatry, about our hearts running after other things, about our desire to find life in, in other things our relentless pursuit of, of other things. But Hebrews 2 describes us this way. It says, we are those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It teaches us that all of our idolatry, all of our attempts to get more, to have a bigger house, to make more money, to get a promotion, to send our kids to a better school, it's us trying to keep death further away from us. That all the things that we turn to for comfort, to deal with our coping, we do it because pain reminds us of death. So we're broken people living in a broken world. We live in the shadow of death. And so how does King Jesus rescue us from our slavery to idols? Well, the first thing King Jesus does is he ascends to his throne by ascending to the cross he purchases us for himself with his blood. He rescues us from the wrath of God. We belong to him, we're forgiven. And then the second thing that he does is what only our king can do. He subjects himself to the greatest fear that we have. King Jesus subjects himself on our behalf to death. And then you know what he does? Three days later, he rises from the dead. King Jesus takes our greatest fear, the source of all of our slavery, and then he publicly demonstrates that it has no power over him, that we belong to a king who's purchased us for himself, that himself has the power of life 
and death. My favorite Acts 2 says it this way. It says, the pangs of death were loosed because it was impossible for him to be held by it. See, King Jesus, in his first coming, goes to the cross, purchases us for himself, and then subjects himself to our greatest fear, which is death, and then rises from the dead in demonstrating to us that we belong to a king who has the power of life and death, he purchases for us a future. He purchases for us a hope. He guarantees that when he comes again, we'll rise to be with him. And see, this hope that we have, this confidence in the king that we belong to, it sets us free from our idols. It sets us free from the need to find life in other things because we know that he's coming again and will rise to be with him. See, in the rising of King Jesus from the dead, in his resurrection, he makes us people who can say, not just with our words, but who can say with our lives, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord. Jesus Christ. So we've seen that the king who was coming to conquer also came once before to rescue, that he came to rescue us and purchase us for himself with his blood by ascending to his throne, by ascending to the cross. We also see that he subjected himself to our greatest fear, which is death, and then publicly demonstrated that death has no hold on him then when he comes again, we'll rise with him. And so if this King Jesus, the one who went to the cross to purchase you for himself and then rose from the dead, if he's the one who's coming the second time, if the one who came the first time is the King Jesus who's coming the second time, how then shall we live? See, our first response ought to be repentance and rest. You could call it the repentance of rest or the rest of repentance, but it's basically this. You don't have to look to other things for life. You don't have to look in independence to be your own king. King Jesus has provided for you in his death and in his resurrection everything you could ever want. He's purchased for you a day that's coming that'll be better than today. He's purchased for you a day when there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more tears, that death itself will be no more. See, the beautiful thing about that is that when we realize that we're forgiven and that we realize we belong to King Jesus and that he's coming back and that we'll rise with him, the stage breaks. It sets us free from our idols. And so our first response is to rest. Our first response isn't to go do more. It's not to go get ourselves cleaned up or to fix up our lives or, or to save ourselves from our idolatry. It's to rest. It's to realize that our king has already bought for us anything we could ever want for ourselves. And then the second thing it calls us to is mission. See, Micah chapter 1, verse 2, it begins by calling the nations of the earth to witness. And Jesus is doing the same thing in his church. That today, 
he's calling the living church. You know, the redeemed community of people that Jesus purchased for himself. He's calling the nations to witness their lives. And so what it does is it calls us to live our repentance, not privately, but publicly. That when the people around us, when the nations of the earth, and for that matter, the neighborhoods of Jacksonville, when they see us resting from our pursuit of life and other things, when they see our repentance, and then when they see the hope that leads us to rest, they themselves are driven to the same King Jesus. See, the second coming of Jesus drives us to mission. It drives us to live our repentance, not just privately, but publicly. So I want to leave you with a closing set of questions. Do you feel like you can rest? Now, I know this morning was a hard, the beginning of it's a hard conversation, but do you feel like you can rest? Do your neighbors see you resting from the things that they're pursuing? And when they see your rest, do they know the hope that you have? Do they know the reason for your rest? See, King Jesus is the rescuer. He's the one who purchased us for himself. He's the one who's making his appeal through us. And King Jesus is the one who's coming again. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we long for the day that you'll return. King Jesus, we worship you as the one who purchased us for yourself. We worship you as the one who conquered our greatest fear, which is death. We thank you, King Jesus, that you've made us a people that can say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? that you've made us a people who can take rest in you. And this morning, King Jesus, as we celebrate Advent, as we look towards your second coming and we take great solace in your first coming, we find ourselves a people filled with joy. We find ourselves a people who take great comfort and have great anticipation at the day that you'll return. So between now and then, we pray that you would return the nations to yourself, that you would continue to draw our hearts closer to yourself. We pray for ourselves at ease that you'd make us a people that live in light of your return. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.